After five hours of painful contractions, my wife's labor uh, grew more intense. Probably not the sermon introduction you really wanted to have this morning. We had all kinds of questions. When would it finally be time? When would the baby finally be ready to come? When would these contractions ease up and give her a little bit of relief? And after prolonged teeth gripping, muscle aching, sweating, crying, crushing the bones in my hand, there was still no baby. And so both of us were asking, when is this going to be over? She'd say things, and just, you just listen to the, to the heartbreaking groaning in this. I can't do it. It's too hard. It hurts. It's never going to stop. I'm so tired. I just want to sleep. But my wife, having had children before, knew that she couldn't give up. And so she asked me when she started saying things like that to talk about the baby. She wanted to know what I thought the color of the baby's eyes might be, what outfit we were going to send him home in, um, what we thought he might grow up to be, what would his personality be like. And so whenever she'd go through these intense moments of labor and these intense contractions, then I would begin to whisper in her ear thoughts of what his little nose might be like and what it might be like to hold him. We, we even had this little thing where I would just squeeze her finger the way a little baby grasps a finger when it is first born, just so that she can remember that something beautiful is coming. All that pain, all that trouble, all that trial, all that travail, sweating, teeth clenching, all of that was going to give way the moment we hear an infant cry. And it gave her the strength, the motivation to long for that unexpected moment when it finally would come. Who knew when it was coming? But when it would come, it would all be worth it. Sometimes life is like prolonged labor. God's plan seems to be delayed. Our suffering seems to be prolonged. And what tends to happen is that when God's plan seems delayed and our suffering seems to be prolonged, is that it breeds complacency and sometimes even sin. During such delays, God's people are tempted to give up, opt out, or lessen, pull back from their faithful walk. When it just seems like the toughness isn't getting over, when it seems like the hardships are continuing on and there's no end in sight, how many of us do not begin to think, well, maybe I need to lighten it up a bit. Maybe it's okay to indulge in a few of my favorite sins. And after all, God knows that I'm hurting and I'm struggling. And we see that kind of phenomenon all through Scripture. Abraham was given the promise of a son, and after 25 years of no son, he begins to take matters into his own hands and turns Hagar into a surrogate mother. Moses delays on the mountain, and the people of Israel build their own golden calf. Samuel delays, and so Saul in fear sacrifices an unfit sacrifice just out of delay and impatience. Later in the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable in which the bridegroom is delayed and the, the, maids, uh, who are, the maids who are supposed to go with the bride and the bridegroom neglect to get the oil that they're supposed to get. And so they miss out on the bridegroom's visitation. My friends, I'm speaking today from a very ancient book, very old Hebrew book about a very modern problem. We as God's people, when we suffer, when we struggle, when we endure times of hardship, 
become complacent. We become sinful. We build idols. We drift away. Just for that momentary lapse of time, we drift away. The prophet Zechariah calls us back to faithfulness, calls us back to true worship of God alone by reminding us that the beautiful and dangerous, the amazing and deadly day of the Lord is coming. And so is the king. Accordingly, wake up. Wake up. Don't give up. Don't fall asleep. Accordingly, we are called to repent of our complacency and to live in faithful obedience. As a bit of background, Zechariah's prophecy comes at a time when Haggai and Zechariah were both ministering among the exiles. You heard from Mike Talley last week that Haggai's first oracle came in the sixth month of the second year of the Persian king Darius's reign. Zechariah's first oracle came two months later. That said, they're speaking to the same historical context. In Haggai, the main problem was that in this prolonged time of suffering, Israel had neglected the rebuilding of the temple. They had nice houses. They had uh, cedar panel walls. They had these beautiful uh, evidences of restoration in their own city. Their marketplaces are booming, and yet the temple's in complete ruin. Well, Zechariah writes into that same complacency. He writes into that same time of spiritual neglect. The surrounding nations did everything possible to hinder the rebuilding of Jerusalem. They made threats, they made violent attacks, they even made accusations, false accusations to the Persian emperor. And if you look at it, these Jewish people who are watching this, they have every right to think that God's promises have been delayed. Where is the kingdom? Where is the restoration? Where are the mountains dripping with new wine? Where is the king for that matter? Where is this restored kingdom where all creation is finally free from oppression, free from war? So from a returning Jew's perspective, God's sitting still. His plan is stagnated. Nothing's moving. So we might as well set up camp in this world and do what's best to make ourselves comfortable. It's easy to understand, right? Going to be here for a while. Whenever I send my kids a timeout and it's indefinite, they tend to sneak little toys in their pockets because they know they're going to be there for a while. So I have to search them down before the timeout commences because I want them to understand you might be there for a while, but you're not going to grow complacent while you're there. You're going to learn a lesson. It's the same way with us. The seeming delay in restoration led to a lapse of faith, a spirit of complacency. The temple work stopped. The markets were open on the Sabbath. Might as well make a quick buck. God's not coming. People did not know the scriptures. They were greedy. They began oppressing the widows and the orphans and the poor all over again. The helpless were uh, sold into slavery all over again. They They were indebted and strapped with unlawful interest rates that Deuteronomy said should not be done. So the Israelites began returning to the very same sins that led them into exile once again, just like that. Men started marrying into idolatrous families and worshiping their gods. And as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, the children are no longer learning about the Torah and about Yahweh. They're not doing Deuteronomy 6 at this time. 
Everything's on pause. Spiritual walk with the Lord is just on hold indefinitely while these people continue to grow physically, to grow economically in their own nation. It's not much different than what we see happening in our own lives. I'm going to ask you for just a moment to forget what's going on in the nation. There will be applications for that. But just to think about your own life for a minute. God's made promises to you, right? And to me as individuals as well, right? It's corporate promises for sure, like the resurrection and restoration of the whole world. But isn't that also individual promises that things like chronic illness will someday be gone? Meningitis won't be a fear anymore. Death won't be a problem anymore. Well, even death itself will be turned back. So we, we know as God's people that we have promises from God. And yet, when is God going to actually do what he said he was going to do? For years and years. I mean, the, the apostles and prophets thought that Jesus would come back in their generation, and he didn't come. And now here we are, thousands of years later, still waiting. And so now it's kind of gotten to a point, if you think about it, when people start talking about Jesus coming back, we're all kind of like, yeah, someday. <laughs> and, and few of us doubt in our lifetime, few of us would doubt it could happen at any moment. Most of us continually, perpetually keep the day of the Lord on that back burner. It's coming, it's on the agenda, but it's not, it's not for a long time. That's how we treat it. And so as a result, we accumulate pet idols, little things that we don't mind keeping around and, and, and harboring, because God's not coming yet. I'll throw it out someday, but I'll keep it for now. We harbor secret sins. Now, if we knew that the Lord could come back at any moment and see what was on our computer screens, yes, we might actually avoid some of those temptations. But he's, he's not coming right now, so it's okay to harbor some of those things. We tolerate ungodly thoughts. We neglect our spiritual walk with the Lord. So just as the Jews in Haggai and Zechariah's time were beginning to see this restoration as something, it was a far off distant reality. So also we have begun to treat the day of the Lord as something that is far, far, far out of sight. Now, I'm not suggesting anyone here would ever suggest or say that the day of the Lord will never come. However, it's apparent distance in our lives and on our minds and in our thoughts and in our speech shows that, it, that we do not have the urgency to live radically obedient lives to the Lord. There will always be a day to shape up. There will always be a day to work on that problem. There will always be a day to ask for forgiveness. But for now, there's not so much urgency to live in absolute radical obedience. So our best and favorite sins are given a stay of execution. And our resolve to serve the Lord with a whole heart put on the back burner just to simmer. But not to boil over. Our spiritual temple... Our relationship with the Lord is left in ruins, but our marketplaces, our luxurious homes, and our career ambitions are thriving. We are physically comfortable people who can change the AC with a snap of a finger. I don't even have to walk to the back of the room. I just say, Alice, can you turn up the air? That's how comfortable I've been. And there's nothing wrong with comfort except for the fact that My spiritual life may not be exactly what it should be. It's that complacency. Our Bibles collect dust 
while our social media sites are updated every half hour. Our imbalanced attention gives more focus to the stock market than it does to the eternal investments that will reach eternal dividends. We want to know what the Dow Jones is doing today, even on it will change tomorrow, and yet we don't care so much about the eternal fruit that we'll be reaping for all eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. How often do we check on that stock market? Our prayer life languishes, but our gossip sessions are well attended. Zechariah's word of warning is against complacency. Complacency. Wake up, God's people. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, there's many things in this letter that's confusing. I had to read it multiple times, 14 chapters. I've read it in Hebrew. I've read it in English. I've read it in the Septuagint and all, every way you read it, it's confusing, okay? So I, I, I sympathize with those of you who are like, I would have never thought we were reading Zechariah today on the Sunday morning, but we are. One of the things that you can see pretty straightforward, though, is its structure is, is pretty simple. Every new structure begins with a time stamp, stamp. In the eighth month, that's the first time stamp. The 24th day, in the fourth year. So he's got three sections. Section number one simply says this, Repent. Section number two then goes on to give you a list of visions. There's eight visions plus a ninth kind of vision-like enactment. And then you get to the third section, and that's the oracles. These are all the results, the explanations that come from these visions. And so what we're not going to do today is we're not going to walk through each three of the three sections. Instead, we're going to go thematically. We're going to look at the call to repentance And then we're going to look at the visions and also bring in the oracles that correspond with those visions at the same time. And then finally, we're going to talk about some basic responses to the day of the Lord. So if we listen closely to Zechariah's message, I hope you will find yourself wherever you are, whatever state you're in, challenged to wake up out of whatever complacency you have. And let me tell you, every one of us has it, including myself. And hopefully, by the end, we will live a forward-leaning life that anticipates the day that Christ will come and set up his kingdom on earth. That's what we do. We don't live a a life that's backward-leaning and looking back on all the things that are happening. We live a a forward-leaning life that longs for that day to get closer, that anticipates that day coming. And everything we're headstrong pushing through to that day, that's what we want. So my hope is that by the end of this, that you will be leaning forward for that day. Past all the days that you see right now. Section one, repent. Apart from giving some basic historical background, chapter one, verses one through six, lays out the basic call for repentance. He says this, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. He's very redundant here for a reason. Do not be like your fathers. Now, the repetition of day of the Lord is extremely important. The returning exiles need to understand who they're dealing with, who it is that's speaking to them. The title, Lord of hosts, depicts a divine warrior. This is the same Lord of hosts who struck down Goliath, 
the same Lord of hosts who beat the Egyptians, and he's the same Lord of hosts that can judge his own people. I mean, this is the divine word. This is the lion. And and if you think that a lion is only your friend, wait until you poke him in the tail, and then you'll see how dangerous that lion can be. So this is what the people of God need to see, that this is the Lord of hosts. That's not just good news. That's terrifying news. Good news for them and all their enemies because he's the divine warrior that can defeat the Goliaths. There's also terrifying news because he's the Lord that can definitively judge his people. If anyone has a vision of standing before the Lord on the final day, and in that vision you're not trembling, even with your profession of faith, even with your profession of faith, you will stand before the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven and earth, literally the Lord who reigns over all People, every secret brought out on that day, every secret thought, every hateful feeling, every idol at that day drug out before the King, the Lord of hosts. And even if you're justified because of faith in Jesus Christ, who does not blush at the thought of that? Know who you're dealing with. He is the one who can definitively destroy enemies. And definitively judge sin. Now what does this Lord of hosts want? In no uncertain terms, he calls his people to return. The word return means very simply in Hebrew, repentance. It's a symbol. It's a sign. So return. Come back from where you've been and come back to the Lord. So because of their sin, there's been a wying off. Israel forsook God, went after other lovers, other idols, other gods, and God took his glory and he departed. He went Ichabod, right? That's the name that you hear in 1 Samuel. He went Ichabod, the glory of the Lord, departed from Israel. And so you have this wying off and this separation, and God says, return. Come back from your idolatry. Come back from your oppression. Come back from your injustice. Come back from your lack of reverence to God, and come back to me. Now, I just want to show you the resiliency of sin. We all might think we're okay. We're pretty good people, right? We're not that sinful. Let's just think about the resiliency of sin here. The mass slaughter from the Babylonians, the absolute desecration, burning up, and destruction of the temple. A 70-year exile, 70 years, an entire generation exile in a land, that'd be like us all being moved off to Iran right now. All of us as Americans being moved off to Iran. Imagine how terrifying that would be. Those things were not enough to eradicate the sins. Those things were not enough. My friends, we, need a, we desperately need a new heart. They had just seen all this stuff happen to their nation, and they're right back again. It's like Adam getting kicked out of the garden. God saying, you know what, I'll let you come back. And he comes back and he goes right back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what they do. That's what we do as people. We are sinful people. And sin is resilient in our hearts. Do not underestimate how strong your sin is. That is why it took God to die on the cross. Not man, but a God. To die on the cross. Well, what does he want? He wants them to do, according to Zechariah 7 and 8, to do exactly what he's always told them to do. Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. 
Doesn't that sound like Micah 6, 8? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? My friends, whatever the state of the nation is right now, it is your responsibility as an individual to ask, do you live up to Micah 6, 8 and Zechariah 7, 8? Regardless of how the word justice might be misused and misplaced and retermed, God has his own definition of it, and you are responsible as an individual to live up to that. That's what God wants. His standards have never changed. Zechariah 7.10, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. God says that the people refused to pay attention, that they turned a stubborn shoulder, they stopped their ears, they made their hearts diamond hard. Diamond is one of the strongest jewels on earth. It can scratch a rock, it can chip, it's used to chip other things. Made their hearts diamond hard. And God hates it so much that he is the only God in history who allowed his own temple to be destroyed as punishment. Their sin made him so angry that he allowed his own house to be brought down. Now, it could be argued that I think the main application that we get from Zacharias is to turn from sin. What sin? Well, do you know of any sin of in, in your life? If you don't, then you've got a problem. Turn from sin. You should know what sins you have in your life. You should be turning from them actively, returning back to God. You may say, I've never oppressed the widow or the fatherless. I have not oppressed anyone. However, none of us have shown mercy and loved kindness in the way we should. Who would be arrogant enough to say that we have? You've loved every single person in the exact way you should? I've never thought evil against someone else in my heart. My friends, have you ever gossiped about someone behind their back and they didn't know it? Have you ever misrepresented somebody's character, maligned somebody for their position on something? Have we ever backbit one another? Nice to the face, they turn their back and bite. Everyone's done that, haven't we? So you know what that means? We're all sinners. And we're in desperate need for a change of heart. We're in desperate need for real repentance. My friends, forbidden fruit drove us from the garden And yet we continue coming back to that same forbidden fruit every single time in different shapes, in different ways, to discern for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, instead of going to God and being humble under his kingship and allowing him to reign over us and to rule over us. He calls us to repent, to turn from the forbidden fruit, to come back to him. If you want real restoration, I hate to tell you this, But God's plan for restoration will not be absent from your real repentance. This idea that the day of the Lord is going to come and we're not doing anything, that's false. The world's trembling and we're repenting. (laughs) If you want to know what happens on that day. Every single one of us, when we see Jesus as Christians who knew the day was coming, are going to be ashamed by how much we put before him, and we're going to realize when we see him face to face how much better he was than everything else we made our lives about. And we'll return. 
Why not now? Why wait for your face to be blushing? Why not return now? Now, we've got to pick up the sermon if we're going to be out before lunch. So uh, let's look at these visions. He depicts a beautiful and terrifying day of the Lord. Now, I don't know what you think about the day of the Lord, but let's just ask this question. What will the day of the Lord be like? Modern readers typically think about it as harmless, right? This is when we get our cherub wings and our little halo, and this is where we all sit, you know, uh, bottoms up on the, on the cloud, you know. Um, that is not what the day of the Lord is. And I don't know who depicts it that way, but they're, they're, they're batty if they do, okay? The day of the Lord is this earth-shaking, heaven-rending kind of event. Everybody knows it happens. Everybody knows when it will happen. Uh, not when it will happen, but when it happens, everybody will know that it's happening. Everything's shaking at this moment. Things are crumbling. Governments toppling. Kings falling. Dead raising. I mean, this is a terrifying day. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's scary. It's like standing before a line without a fence between you. How majestic that lion is. How incredible, how huge, how big. How much you want to pet that lion. And yet at the same time, how much you know that that lion could swipe one paw and you're done. That's the day of the Lord. So my friends, let's wake up to some of these visions. Let's look at these depictions and figure out what the day of the Lord is going to be like. The first vision shows us this, that God knows his plan. Doesn't need anyone to remind him. He hasn't forgotten it. God knows his plan. Zacharias sees a horseman riding on a red horse. There's a lot of symbolism here with other horses behind him. The man explains, these are those whom the Lord sent to patrol, literally to walk to and fro on the earth. And in their patrols, they see that the, Lord, the earth remains at rest. Now, in, at rest sounds like a good idea. In Hebrew, really what's happening here is, is the earth is sitting down. Nothing's happening. Things are just kind of plodding away. Even the angels patrolling the earth, they're like, God, nothing's, nothing's happening. Nothing's moving. What about your, your plan? You know, that, that plan, even, even the angel of the Lord comes to God and says, um, the Lord of hosts... How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? He knows that 70 years has come and God said 70 years would be the time when uh, God's people are brought back from the exile and brought into the land again. And yet, nothing's happening. Nothing's stirring. Nothing's moving. How many of you kind of feel that way right now about life? It's all just kind of sitting stagnant, right? And stagnant water smells nasty and gets worse and draws mosquitoes. It gets worse and worse and worse. And it's just kind of like, when are you going to do something about this, God? Even the angels in this vision are doing that. And yet God says, he answers graciously and with compassionate words, he says that he is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem, and he is angry at the nations that oppress them. He declares that his mercy will return to Jerusalem, and he sends a man with a measuring line to get ready for the rebuilding. The point of the vision is that though nothing seems to be happening, God knows his plan. 
You may be in constant aching. You may be in constant pain. You may be in constant weariness. You watch the news and you're in daily fears. And my friends, at those moments, it's more important than ever when you find that steam rising over the stagnant water that you watch on Fox News and CNN, it's at that moment you remind yourself the Lord knows his plan. Can you imagine how much better your 6 o'clock news time would be if you just ended it with that? Go to sleep. <laughs> God knows. So the first, the first vision, that's a simple message. That, that's all God wants them to know from the first message, is from the first vision, is God knows. Yeah, the earth's sitting down. Things seem like nothing's happening, but he remembers. The second vision, Zechariah sees four horns. And in this vision, he really wants to, wants to highlight the fact that God will vindicate. Horns in the Old Testament scripture are these big powers, these kingdoms, right? And so he sees these four horns, and they drove Judah out into exile. Now, if you're like me, and if I were a Jew, and I had been drove in, driven into exile, I'd want God to judge all them, right? Remember what they did. They killed my cousin at the temple mount. They burnt down the temple. They destroyed our markets. We are homeless now, and they've continued to oppress us since then. You're just anger rising up, right? Well, the second vision reminds them that it's not they who have vengeance. It's not they who vindicate themselves. Vengeance belongs to God. He sends four craftsmen, again, another hint that he's going to rebuild Jerusalem, and these craftsmen overthrow the horns and throw them down. God will not leave his people's enemies unpunished. Their enemies, like the Philistines, for example, will become like Jebusites. What are Jebusites? Defeated people. So what then? Well, we are to trust God, who will vindicate his people and punish the oppressor. We have no need for all of us that feel that fire inside of us that we've got to defend ourselves. Now, defend ideas, sure. Defend principles, sure. Defending yourself, David didn't even defend himself. Christ didn't defend himself. And you know why? To show for all eternity that it is not man that vindicates himself, but God that vindicates his righteous people. It will be absolutely wrong, and it is absolutely wrong for the president of China to declare that everyone in China must now pray for him and then to imprison them when they refuse. My friends, that is absolutely wrong. But guess what? They need do nothing but keep praying because you throw people like them in the lion's den, it comes back on your own head. God vindicates himself and his people. How great is that to know? Let the nations rage. Let them plot in vain. It does nothing to us because God will vindicate. The third vision centers on the idea that God will rescue his people. Not only will he vindicate them, he will rescue them. He depicts a, a man with a measuring line, an instrument used for building projects. And he goes to measure Jerusalem, but Jerusalem doesn't have any walls. That's weird. In ancient times, you don't build a city without walls. 
And so he's, building, he's going and measuring Jerusalem with no walls. And then he says, I will be to her a wall of fire all around. And I will be the glory in their midst. What does that sound like to you? Where else do we see a wall of fire all around and God's glory in the midst? On the book of Exodus. As they're coming out, Pharaoh tries to attack. Wall of fire. God doesn't let the, the, uh, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians through. He protects his people. And then at night, they're guided by this wall of fire, this pillar of fire. And they're protected. So the point is simply this. And as the vision shows, God will go to the nations and he will bring his people out of them. No one will stop them. No one will harass them. No one will keep them from it. And on that day, they will sing just like the people of God did at the Red Sea. They will praise God for the one who preserved them, the God who protected them, the God who was with them. My friends, can you just preach this simple gospel to yourself? You will make it home. You're not home, but you will make it home. Not one thing that happens in this world will keep that from happening. The scripture says in Zechariah chapter 8 that even the feeblest of God's people will be like David. That sounds great to me. Be like David. We'll be like David standing before Goliath and the Philistines and Saul and the countless others. And no one can harm a hair on our heads. They can't keep God's purposes for his people from happening. Zechariah goes so far to say that God's people, you, are the apple of his eye. Later he describes us as jewels of a crown. God protects his treasure. God protects his people. My friends, there were not laws in Egypt to protect the Israelites from Pharaoh. There were not laws in Babylon to protect Nebuchadnezzar, to keep Nebuchadnezzar from wiping out the Jews. I mean, read Esther. You see Haman in the Persian kingdom able to call for an absolute annihilation of the Jews and to steal their stuff. We read these stories, but they have no real application in our life. How we handle fear. How we handle things that are happening in our world. One of the greatest dangers of the modern church is we don't realize just how impervious we are, how indestructible we are. We are more than conquerors. Not because of the weapons on our hips, but because the God who goes before us. God will rescue and preserve his people. He doesn't need your help. He is the God who fights your battles. He is the God who stops the pharaohs. He is the God that defeats the Goliaths. He is the God who brings back his people from Babylon. So my friends, if you are worried about today's events and the things going on in the nation, more power to you to speak out against him and you know, uh, things that are wrong and state your opinion. But my friends, lessen the stakes a little bit. Your eternal life is not on the line. Your Facebook posts, your public conversations are not guaranteeing that God will get you home. They could take away everything from you and you will still stand before the throne of God. 
So let's just lessen the stakes a little bit here as God's people. Why don't we? Just remember that point. God will rescue. Now, I actually want to spend the most time on the next point. And I think my time is getting close. My timer broke this morning. That's the, that's the reason we're going overtime is my timer broke. So there you go. Next vision, we see the truth that God will forgive sin. The vision depicts Joshua standing. Joshua's the high priest. He's standing before the Lord in filthy garments with Satan beside him as a prosecuting attorney. Some of you have felt what this is like where you're laying at bed at night and you hear these whispers of accusation in your life. Joshua stands as an individual, but as a high priest, he also represents all Israel. Satan, literally the adversary, takes the opportunity to remind God of all these evil things that Joshua has done. Points out the blood on the garment, the dirt, the mud, and he says, See, God, here's the evidence. Man's filthy. He shouldn't stand in your presence. And in a powerful moment in this vision, God looks at Satan and in literal Hebrew translation says, Shut up. Silences Satan, commands that Joshua be given new clothes, washed, and given a place in the presence of God. God himself says about Joshua, who stands as a representative of God's people, that he is a brand plucked from the fire. He's firewood that God has pulled out. My friends, that is you. You deserve every bit as much to burn. You are nothing, you are worth nothing more because of sin than kindling. And it is only because the righteous God has stuck his own hand, gotten burnt himself, and pulled you out of the fire that you are now brought into the presence of God. So he's given new clothes. God says, Behold, I have taken iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with a pure vestment, showing that. Now God's people will once again be the nation of priests that he's called them to be. There's a big problem, however. How can a holy and just God do this? This isn't justice. If we saw this happening in the courtroom where the prosecuting attorney says, he murdered all kinds of people, ran over them. And the judge goes, shut up, prosecuting attorney, and sends him out. That's not justice, is it? So how can a holy and just God Forgive Joshua, shut up Satan, and give Joshua new clothes and allow him to stand in his presence. This is the most important part of, I think, Zechariah's book. Zechariah says that Joshua has a place because of this promise. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. I will bring my servant, the branch. Who's that? The servant and branch are both Old Testament descriptions of the Messiah. Joshua's place before the Lord, the fact that he has been forgiven of his iniquity, is only because of this coming branch. When that branch, the Messiah, comes, God will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day, chapter 3, verse 9, and restore all creation. Several of Zechariah's oracles hint at this branch is coming and how his coming Remove sin. You look at Zechariah twelve nineteen, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, wait a second, who's speaking? This is God speaking, right? When they look on me, what? On whom they have pierced. 
They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is beautiful. When they look on me, God, whom they have pierced, where else in all the scriptures do you see God pierced if not Golgotha? The fact that they look on him and weep, on him, weep about him implies that he resurrects. He raises again. So they're going to look at this pierced God and weep. Jesus himself makes the connection. He uh, talks about on the very night that he was betrayed in Matthew 26, he says that he will be taken, arrested. His disciples will, will all fall away. Why? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's Zechariah 13, 7. So here's where our forgiveness comes from. It comes from the God who's pierced, the shepherd that's struck, and the fountain of David that bleeds cleansing water. God will forgive through his sacrificial death in Jesus Christ. The vision of the lampstand, that's the next one. God will restore his witness in the earth. The lampstand, and we won't go into too much detail here. Lampstand is a symbol for the temple. It's a symbol of the lampstand that's in the temple. It symbolizes God's presence. So God's setting back up his lampstand. He does that by rebuilding the temple. But then you also see two olive trees. And he says that these are symbolic of Zerubbabel and of Joshua. So you've got the Zerubbabel, who's who? who? The Davidic offspring, right? He's the, in the line of David. Then you get Joshua, who's the priest. So you get priest and king, and they're coming together. And so God's restoring the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord for all the earth, and he sets up his own witness among all the earth. From here on out, people will see the light from the lampstand, and they will come to the priest and king. And all that sets the way, sets the, way, sets the trajectory for the coming of the ultimate priest king, Jesus Christ. And when he came... All the earth saw the testimony of God's presence. We can take the next two visions together. They are distinct, but they can be handled together. The flying scroll goes throughout all the earth, and it brings a curse to everyone who is a thief, everyone who swears falsely, the two metaphors of sinners in general. So the flying scroll goes out, probably symbolizing the law, brings a curse, and consumes the house of sinners. And then you see the vision of a basket. Guys, I'm just going to say, before you see the vision of the, the woman in the basket and the people pushing the woman in the basket, putting a lead weight on top, this is not an imperative. It's a vision, okay? So do not go home and put your wives in a basket and say the Bible told you to do so. He sees this basket. He calls the basket the iniquity of the land. And the woman is a woman named wickedness, guilt. So he takes Israel's guilt puts it in Israel's sin in the basket, puts a lead weight on top. It's carried away and shoved at the bottom of a house that's built, literally imprisoned. What do you think he's symbolizing there? Sin is eradicated completely from his people. He takes it away. The Lord will restore his people. He will restore righteousness in the land. He will take away sin. He says later in Zechariah, On that day I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more, and I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Can you imagine a day when we can walk, when we can talk to sisters and brothers without lust, 
when we can talk to one another without hatred, when we no longer have an inclination towards anger and gossip and suspicion and backbiting. Can you imagine how beautiful that day when our first inclination is not sin, but our first inclination is righteousness. And then we get to the final vision right before the enacted parable. The final vision shows that God has a plan to fill the earth with his presence. He sends out these horsemen. They go out to the four winds of the heavens. So you got one going north, east, west, south. And what do they do when they get there? It says that the one that's going to the north in verse 8 of chapter 6 goes to the north and he sets God's spirit at rest in the north country. Well, if the other horsemen are doing the same, then God's spirit's going out and resting in every corner of the world. The vision then is that God is spreading his presence throughout all the earth. North to Babylon, to Iran, to China. East to America. West to Europe. South to Africa. From this place, this is where it's going, just everywhere, just exuding the presence of God. Suddenly, the whole world filled with God's everlasting presence. That's where it's all heading. That's what God wants. And in this beautiful irony, creation began with God resting on the seventh day. History ends with God resting in all the earth. That's what's coming in the day of the Lord. Now, we can't move past this without this final enactment. It's not a vision formally. It is an enactment. And it's the most important enactment that you have. So if you've tuned me out, wake back up, pretend there was an intermission that you went to the bathroom and come back, okay? Here's what the action proclaims that God's Messiah will reign. The Lord commands a group of men to make a crown of silver and gold and to place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Remember, he's symbolizing something else too. It applies to him, right, in the temple building, but it clearly points beyond him. God himself begins to explain it, that this, that this crowning of Joshua, literally Yeshua, prepares the way. For the coming of a new Yeshua, the branch. Here's what he says. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now, we've already seen that the branch and Joshua are two different people. So Joshua is crowned, but he's crowned as an enactment of the crowning that's coming with the branch. The name is, his name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So you see here very plainly, telos is this, Davidic kingship, priesthood coming together into one man who's named the branch, who sits on the throne and establishes God's presence over the nations. Corresponds with all these other truths that we see in Zechariah. Zechariah 9, Judah's humble king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Sound familiar? It reminds us of the, the promises that are made later in, at the end of Zechariah 9. According to Zechariah, the king will bring shalom, everlasting peace, back to all the earth. His rule will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. We sing of America going from sea to shining sea. My friends, this kingdom surpasses that. From sea to sea, all over the world, 
And as a result, in verses 10 through 11, prisoners will be set free. Now, to this day, the Jews will look toward the Mount of Olives because that's where the Messiah will come from. And they get that from here in Zechariah, that one day the Messiah will come, touch foot, touch down on the Mount of Olives, and will walk in to Jerusalem. And from that day forward, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem and water the whole earth. Where else do you see waters flowing out and watering the whole earth? Eden. This king comes, establishes reign throughout all the nations, restores Eden, and reigns forever. My friends, that is the best news you'll hear all day. You can check your headlines later and compare it. Now, here's the real question. Do you want this more than anything else? More than anything else. Do you prepare for this day more than anything else? I mean, we're preparing for all kinds of battles, all kinds of arguments, all kinds of futures that we play out in our minds, but are we preparing for this day? When the heavens split and we see the king, that's why we're here as a church. We're not here to be complacent together until we all die. We're here to prepare one another and prepare the world for the fact that there's a king coming. We want a whole bunch of things, but rarely do I hear people speak of where they want to be in 20 years, in the day of the Lord. That's what we should want more than anything. My friends, if you cannot honestly, in your heart of hearts, say that you want this day more than anything else, that you give more attention to this day more than anything else, that you prepare yourself for this day more than anything else, then I'm just going to tell you in all the pastoral love I can muster, you have grown complacent. Your heart, like the world in the first vision, is sitting down, resting and not looking forward to that day. It's interesting that outside of a few minor exhortations, Zechariah doesn't tell us to do much. The commands and the descriptions are totally different. That's an application in and of itself. Looking at the day of the Lord, looking to the day of the Lord, is an application in and of itself. How might remembering the fact that Jesus can return as king change the way you live this next week? If I were to tell you, and I won't do this, don't quote me saying this, because I'm not, I don't know when the Lord will come back. But let's just suppose I said publicly, and we knew without a doubt that the Lord was coming next Sunday, 6.15 a.m. That's probably the only thing people in live stream will take, and it'll be on Facebook. So... Suppose someone were to say, Lord's coming next Sunday at 6.15 a.m. How would your Monday be different? What about Wednesday? Would, you, would your screen time go down? Would your worries go down? Would your Bible get picked up? Would your prayer life suddenly improve? Would you walk away from some of those sins you've carried all your life? Would you maybe go have meetings with people that you know that you've sinned against and they've sinned against you and seek restoration and reconciliation? Because the king's coming. We've got to get ready, right? What if I told you you woke up today, you were completely bored, you slept through half the sermon, but he's coming tonight. 
how might your afternoon be different? Just that thought that the day of the Lord is on the horizon can save you and rescue you from pornography, can save you and rescue you from unjust anger and from fear. If we knew the Lord was coming next Sunday, who cares what's in the headlines on Thursday? King's coming. My friends, that is the way every believer is supposed to be living doesn't mean that we don't care about what's happening now. No. Yeah, we're called to be responsible for what's going on and to speak up and speak into. There's just a terrible imbalance. A terrible imbalance. We spend most of our time focusing on today and tomorrow and the weeks from now. Very little of our time thinking of the day of the Lord. It's actually supposed to be reversed. Sure, watch the news, post about the headlines, talk with people about what you should do. That's all right and fine. But more than anything else, this, this should be the day you look forward to. I don't know who's going to be president in November. But I know that when Jesus comes, he'll be the only one on the throne. I don't know who's going to be GOP. I don't even know what GOP stands for. I just know that people say GOP all the time. Who cares who's GOP? Because I know who's God. (laughs) That's a t-shirt. So my friends, just allow yourself to breathe easy today. Don't be complacent. I'm not giving you permission. I'm actually telling you to wake up out of complacency and breathe in the sovereignty of the Lord. The fact that he knows his plan. The fact that the the shepherd has been struck, God has been pierced, and you've been forgiven and cleansed, and one day your sin will be completely eradicated. The worst enemies of God's people will be judged. God's presence will fill the earth, and Jesus will reign forever as king. My friends, that is good news. Have a great Sunday. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that Zechariah will wake us up out of our complacency. As we finish off with a few words of worship, Father, and some songs, may we sing passionately. God, I thank you that you've taken this little bit of time. You've given these people grace in their heart to give me the time. And God, I thank you for every minute. And I pray that we will prepare day by day for the day of the Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.